Hello. Hello again. You all set? Ready to go. All right, let's do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. This is a podcast about actors and other theatrical artists and other types of artists and all kinds of people uh, and just how they do what they do and how you pursue and have a successful artistic career and balance it with the rest of your life and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I am extremely excited about my guest today because she is a very, very experienced, very professional costume designer and costume constructor and all things costume. And uh, that is a world that I... You know, I'm just so excited to really delve into uh, and, and what it's like to really do that as a profession and and do that as part of an artistic, you know, team for, for theater productions and so forth. So uh, Genevieve V. Beller, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, sure, no pressure. <laughs> None at all. <laughs> um, uh, hey, I'm just going off your incredible resume that you sent me, so don't worry about it. Um I did say your name right, right? Genevieve V. Beller, is that correct? Yes, you did. I briefly tried to make Genevieve happen, and that was a mistake. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so, um, you know, we were just talking off the air about, you know, a lot of important points about, you know, what it takes to be a costume designer and, and misconceptions about it and so forth. We're going to get into all that as well as your background and how you got into it. But I always start these things with asking what you're up to right now. Are you currently working on specific projects? Um, do you have a day job? I know you just got back from a vacation, but what is your sort of life and focus at this moment? Uh, well, I actually got back from a, a workcation because that's the great thing about what I do is sometimes I can do it from anywhere. Um, so I was visiting my brother and his family in Maui. Uh, and so my day-to-day -day lately has been looking like I'm working on Susical, uh, the musical at the Orlando Repertory Theater, and I'm doing that from afar. Wow. Yeah. So my days for the last couple of weeks have been I'll wake up uh, very early Maui time, but uh, reasonably late Orlando time, and I will be answering emails from my shop manager. I'll attend fittings via Skype uh, or do shopping online, and uh, I'll spend the four, first three or four hours of my day doing that, and uh, then spend the rest of the day playing with the kids. So I, I, we have to back up for a second because this <laughs> is already very interesting. I would never in a million years think that costume design for a production is something you could do uh, remotely. Um, so explain that a little more. And even specifically, you said fittings via Skype. Yeah. That, that amazes me because I feel like you have to be there to measure, feel, and look at the person and all that kind of stuff. Well, and to be clear, I would very much like to be there, um, but the reality of a lot of uh, regional theaters now is that they do want to have a designer with a larger level of experience um, that they may not have in their uh, their locality, although Orlando has a lot of really, really fantastic costume designers, but I just happen to have been working with the rep for... Um, 
gosh, 10 years at this point. But, uh, yeah, you can't always afford to have an artist in residence for the entirety of the build. And a designer can't always afford to be in residence uh, for the entirety of the build process, um, which could be, you know, four, six, even 12 weeks because, Unlike, uh, say, a lighting designer, I can't necessarily be working on two or three techs at the same time without significant support, um, although they need support as well. So if I want to take a job in Orlando, I can only, at the, what they're able to pay, I can only really be there for a couple of weeks. Um, and sometimes they're able to bring me out for first fittings. Uh, or we'll decide whether it's more important to the show that I be there to do a pull from stock first and then attend fittings remotely, or if it's better for me to be at fittings. It depends on sort of what we're trying to achieve with the design. Um, so ideally, uh, I would be out at least twice. But in this particular case, uh, all of my fittings are remote, and I am arriving on Thursday night and then I'll be there a week before first dress. So I'll be there for final fittings. Uh, but yeah, technology has allowed us to collaborate from afar. Um, it's made certain things easier and other things harder. You do have to be very, very, very good at communication uh, when you do a show from afar. And you have to have people with the time in the location to communicate with you. So they did hire a specific, an assistant for me in Orlando who her sole job is pretty much to liaise with me and make sure that she's asking the right questions and uploading the photos um, and taking the notes and keeping track of the paperwork. Because if it was just me attending a Skype fitting and saying, okay, have fun, uh, that would not work at all. Amazing, really, really amazing. I, I, I would have had no idea that, and this is what you were telling me off the air, that people really do not realize how much is involved with, with the costume department. Incredible. Um, so, wow, okay. So, and what you were saying is that, in ter is that you, you are able, because of being able to be remote, to work on multiple production, like different jobs at the same time, different theaters. Is that what you meant? Yes. Um, and that's more, that's very common for people to do, uh, in person in New York, especially where there's so much theater. So yeah. if I'm working locally in New York, I will be working on, I'll be designing a show. I'll be an associate on another show. Um, I'll be, you know, picking up stitcher or shopping work in between just because of the economic realities. But also, you know, you want to get your name out there and stay busy. Um, but regionally where there just is not necessarily enough work to keep you in the same place for long periods of time. Right. Uh, yeah, it is very helpful to be able to work remotely and it does allow a lot of theaters to work with um, a more diverse set of artists. Very, very cool. Very cool. And I assume, and maybe I shouldn't, that, and this is similar for actors or can be, you know, 
obviously in New York, there's many different levels of theater. There's off Broadway, off Broadway, and obviously Broadway, uh, and and various um, subtleties within all that. Um, and drag. And drag, sure. Um, so, would I be correct in assuming, I know this is a big generalization, but that generally, unless you're Broadway or close to Broadway level, you're probably going to be able to make more money as a costume designer with regional theater than theater in New York? Um... I mean, for, on just a design fee basis, yes. Mm-hmm. Although I would, uh, I would say currently, off Broadway and regional theater pays pretty similarly. Uh, the difference is cost of living, right? Uh, but yeah, even uh, you know some of the hardest, you know, some of the more well-known Broadway designers that I know, they're still working. Uh, three or four shows at once in multiple locations. Amazing, yeah. Um, it's it's again, it's this whole industry that people either take for granted or aren't even aware of. <laughs> no, it really is. This is this is blowing my mind already. <laughs> so no, for real. So, no, I, I remember having that moment when I uh, first got to New York and I worked at uh, Parsons Mears as a first hand. I remember walking in the workroom and finding out that there was a woman, actually several people, whose sole job it was was to do hand beating wow. in this one shop. They were hand beaters. That that's what they did for a living. Um, that's all that they've done for a living. They will retire as hand beaters, and that's how large this industry is. That there is a call for people who do nothing but bead. And for those of us, including myself, who may be a little or very unclear on what exactly that means, what 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 is a beater? What does that mean? So a beater is, you know, so in this particular shop, Parsons Mears, they have the contract for the Lion King. So there are multiple uh, lioness corsets that have uh, beaded elements that, so when you buy a beaded dress from the store, like for prom or something like that, it's usually going to be done by machine. Well, these, um, the machine beating, A, won't, ha- won't stand up to uh, the rigors of performance, but also the designer has designed a specific pattern. Uh, the actor may be a different size, or it's just a technique that can't be done by machine. Um, so an example would be some of the really intricate embroidery and beading on Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a technique called tambour beading. Um, it dates back to medieval, medieval eras, and there are still people that do that and get paid super well to do it. Uh, Shout out to Eric Winterling, uh, one of the larger shops here in New York City. They have a tambour beater on staff uh, who does beautiful and amazing work. Um, but yeah, it's on on these Broadway shows or movies or for fashion, there is a need for a an intricacy and level of detail that you just don't see in retail. And there are people that need to make that happen. Uh, for artistry, but also for longevity. I mean, how long has the Lion King been going on? And they're in in how many different countries? Uh, and so there's uh, 
essentially a new cast member going into a Lion King show every day. And there are hundreds of artisans making sure that they look just as good as they did on opening night. And you know what? That leads me to a question that I never would have thought about either. And I'm assuming the answer is yes, but it's interesting, which is, you know, when shows tour and play in different places, like big shows such as The Lion King and many others, I assume that just like every other element of the production, it's required that the original Broadway or wherever it started, the original um, costume designer's design <coughs> has to be exactly the same. Like, it has to be all the exact same costumes and so forth. Is that accurate? Um, yes and no. Sometimes the needs of a tour are different than what the realities at a Broadway house um, are. So, for example... Uh, SpongeBob is about to go out on tour and that original, the design in the Broadway house featured a very elaborate Rube Goldberg machine at the proscenium. You can't build a proscenium sized Rube Goldberg machine at every touring house that you go to. So, um, they're going to have to re-envision the spirit of that, uh, that set in a way that can tour multi-cities at a time. And the costumes as well. Um, I worked with Sarah Lux, was the associate, uh, to David Zinn on that. And each costume was very individual to the performer. So they will, of course, want to reuse things as much as possible um, to, you know, for budgetary concerns. And they're going to want to stay, they're going to want to stay true to the, the spirit of the design. Uh, but there is sometimes some redesign that happens. Um, I'm not involved in that particular tour, so I couldn't tell you what would or wouldn't be um, happening. But, for example, I worked as a shopper on the recent Sound of Music tour, uh, and we had an actress in a ensemble role who the original Broadway actress had been a size um, that was 10 sizes different than the woman that was cast in the tour role. So we rebuilt all of her costumes, but all of the original fabrics weren't available. So as a shopper, what I had to do is I had to take the original fabrics and then go and swatch something similar and bring those to Jane Greenwood, the designer, and say, you know, these are your choices. What would you like us to make this out of? Um, and so for The Lion King, uh, having been going on for so long, Julie Tamor has other things to do. Sure. Uh, and there, it is a full-time job making sure that that, do- that design is, especially with Disney, as true to fact as possible. Um, Mary Peterson continues to be the associate on that uh, to this day. And she's a lovely woman and a very, very busy woman who travels all over the world opening Lion and closing Lion King after Lion King after Lion King. And it is, there's just as much work in opening each new production uh, as there was in the original from a labor standpoint. Yeah. And you got to find either the same or similar, you know, materials, sources, however they name the costumes. Absolutely incredible. And yeah, you know, I, 
it just occurred to me too, for, forget even about touring, even just a Broadway show that's been running that long. Of course, every so often you're going to have to replace the costumes or a different size actor is in there. Yeah, wow. It's, it's wow. <laughs> yeah, or you're even just in a completely different set of circumstances. Uh, one of my first associate jobs here in New York, I was working for Whitley, Whitney Walker on um, Fiasco's Into the Woods. And that original production, uh, they had sort of completely redesigned it at the last minute because they just decided that the show was going in a weird, new, wonderful direction. Um, and so what ended up happening is they were, they essentially stripped them down to their underwear. Um, I mean, it was period underwear, so it was petticoats and, you know, but they ended up in these beautiful altered petticoats with vintage lace and, you know, sort of odd suspender straps. And it was a very sort of beautifully cobbled together patchwork organic look that by the time we got to roundabout was falling apart. Mm. And so we had to rebuild an entire show Um, And I remember I had to go and find every single swatch of white or cream eyelet cotton lace in the city of New York in the middle of November. (laughs) And there was not a lot. And I still remember we had decided that we couldn't find the original fabric for um, one of Cinderella's dresses. And so we had decided on another one. And I remember being in this random discount store shopping for a personal project and I found it. I found the fabric and I called the shop and I said, stop work immediately. I'm bringing the real fabric. Uh, because by that time, you know, this $80 a yard fabric had trickled down to the discount stores and I got it for 10. Yeah. And of course, you know, it has to get there at some point. You got to figure something out because opening night is opening night. And of course there's, budgetary concerns. Yeah, there's there's so much to deal with, clearly. Non-flexible deadlines, absolutely. Right. All right, so let's talk about your background and, and how someone gets into this field as a career. Where, where are you from, and how did this all start for you? Um, I am from the Florida Panhandle, uh, Panama City, Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, both of my parents are, or were, I guess they're both retired now, therapists. Mm-hmm. which, you know, I joke a lot. I was raised by two therapists and a lawyer, so I can handle anything an actor throws at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which there is a, a, a fair amount of overlap uh, in fittings and sort of the, a lot of personal issues come to happen in the fitting room. Um, and we are often the therapist to the actors. Um, yeah, but very, involved in, you know, sort of art and drawing and and sketching as a child. And, you know, my parents would put me in various art camps. But it wasn't until uh, high school that I found out that costumes was something that people actually did for a living. I was uh, working on the school play. I didn't get cast. And they said, well, why don't you be on the costume crew? And I had never sewn. Um, I had a passing interest, interest in carpentry, not sure why they didn't put me on, on scenic. Yeah. Uh, but that has led to me doing, to me making a lot of costumes with power tools. So. 
Really? Wow. Uh, yeah, I specialize uh, when I was younger and to some degree now in costume crafts, which is sort of any costume that you make out of non-traditional materials. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I got put on the costume crew and it was this completely different artistic language. It was collaborative. It was working with the script. It was working with the actors. It was working with the directors, you know, and also working within audience expectations. I was getting to do all of this historical research that I found really interesting. Um, cause when I was much younger, I wanted to be, um, a forensic anthropologist and do autopsies on Peruvian mummies because I wanted to unwrap the secrets of ancient civilizations. And it was like, oh, well, you can do that, but you don't have to get dirty. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, I, right. I usually, I get covered in paint instead of, uh, instead of blood and dirt. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and so eventually I did start getting cast in, in the plays in high school and I found that I was less interested in telling the story with my own voice and I was more interested in listening to the voices of others and using that knowledge to put together something a little bit more, you know, I hate to overuse the word collaborative, but that's really where it is for me is in the ability to discover different cultures and viewpoints through clothing. Oh, not overusing it. That's, that's how it should be. Um, and so, okay. So you just, you just, you found your love for this in high school and, um, and then, so did you already, did you, well, you mentioned that you had that other interest of the anthropology, but I mean, so, did you end up deciding even at that point that you thought you would try to do this as a career or? Um, yeah, I ended up, I, you know, my mom was one of those helicopter moms that, you know, I went to my first campus visit, you know, my freshman year. Um, so it was always very, you will go to college, you will go to college. Uh, and I, uh, I had put together a portfolio for uh, a school competition and so I went to the University of Florida, um, and I was put in touch with their costume department. Wow. And they looked at my portfolio and they said, yeah, absolutely. We want you. Please, please come here. So, uh, so just to be clear, you literally put together a portfolio and were literally trying to get into college for costume design. Yeah. Amazing. Very cool. I mean, and I mean, I look back now, and um, this was in the days before uh, before Photoshop, and I had no idea what I was doing. My portfolio was a scrapbook. <laughs> Apparently, it wasn't. It was, you know, complete up. with stickers. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so and then so you ended up uh, studying there. Yeah, I ended up in their BFA program, um, which was really lucky for me to get in as a freshman, uh, which they normally didn't do. They would make you. It was a four year program, but you were, you entered it after your freshman year. So you ended up in school for five years. Um, so because I was able to get in in my freshman year, I skipped that extra year, um, which was great. Nice. And I was able to work alongside grad students and get a lot of hands-on design work at a very, very young age. Um, and one of those grad students, uh, Darren Pufal, took me under his wing and he would bring me with him as an assistant 
on his summer jobs. And I got a lot of experience that way. Phenomenal. So again, for people listening, just to be clear, you know, everybody knows that actors can get BFAs and MFAs, but if you're in one of the design components of theater, whether it be costume, lighting, set design, you can also get BFAs in those things and, and MFAs in those things. Yes, and the MFA is the terminal degree for costumes. Um, there, you can get a PhD in performance, I think. Um, yeah, maybe it's rare, probably. It's it's rare, but yeah, that to my knowledge does not currently exist for costumes. Um, and you know, obviously, like acting and other things, you know, there are all different paths, and and there's no sort of you know necessarily you know rules, but. Would you say that, in general, people that want successful professional careers in costume design kind of need to have a degree in it, or not necessarily? Um, I think that's a complicated question, and I think that it's really a very individual basis. Um, I know a lot of costume people in New York who have very little formal education and who had been able to sort of work their way up mm -hmm. um, from the very bottom ranks of the costume shop and then do the assistant thing um, and work their way up to designer. Yeah. Um, and honestly, like pace-wise, it's about – you end up at a – at about the same place and at about the same level as um, the people who have gone to school. What really is different is um, often work ethic and uh, network. Uh, and it's sort of, so you have to look and see where is it that you want to go and what do you want to do um, and what do you need to get there. I never really planned on going to New York. Oh, really? Really, yeah. Um, that was not part of my my trajectory. It was one of those things. I went to school, um, and my path in various ways led me to New York. But I would say, a, like, absolutely, if you definitely want to do costumes, like, that, that is your end-all, be-all, I would say that an undergrad program is a good idea. Mm -hmm. But I highly, highly, highly recommend getting some work experience and figuring out what you think your trajectory is going to be before getting an MFA um, and choosing your school accordingly. Um, because if you want to work in LA and work in movies, there are schools that are better for that. If you want to be a technician um, and a draper, uh, you know, or a costume maker, that is different than design. Um, it is its own career track that is just as rewarding and just as valid. And there are schools that are better suited to that than the one that's going to teach you just how to draw. Sure. And um, you mentioned about, you know, for ex the example of if you want to do movies rather than theater, perhaps, or, you know, there, I mean, there's so much filmed media these days, obviously, TV, film, and mm -hmm. the streaming, you know, everything's on camera, um, tons of outlets for that. Um, again, as a, as a naive person about this, I would assume, probably wrongly, and, and that's why I'm asking you about it, 
that the costume component I wouldn't think would be too different for stage versus camera, but is it? Um, the process is very different. Um, especially so if you consider, especially for film, although for theater as well, um, costume illustrator is a career path all in itself. Um, and if you're very, very good at drawing, that's a really great way to meet a lot of really wonderful designers and make some good money. Um, especially if you excel at the digital rendering. Um, so what, and what, that, is that, what, what is that? Like creating pictures to, to show directors the design or what is that? Mm -hmm. A lot of designers do not have extremely strong um, rendering skills or are, or don't have the time right. to do drawings on the technical level uh, that a director or a shop needs to see. Mm -hmm. um, so to throw a name out there, um, Christian Cordello um, is an Italian designer, and he does a great deal of the sketches for the Marvel Universe. Uh -huh. uh, he was also, I believe, the principal costume illustrator for The Shape of Water. And that's mostly what he does is he creates really, really beautiful sketches based off of the designer's vision. Um, and he works very, very closely to get these incredibly detailed uh, costume renderings that not just that they look good, but also, I mean, you have to consider millions upon millions of dollars are going into these films. And yep. there's neither the time nor the money to make them twice. So having an extremely detailed and extremely realistic sketch helps in that process that, you know, we know exactly what it's going to look like before it even goes on the actor. Yeah, and of course, you know, I can only imagine what's involved, for example, in something like the Marvel Universe where they've made all these movies now and they've had to have, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man costume and and uh, Chris Hemsworth Thor costume and so forth, uh, you know, many, many times over. You know, who knows if they just have a bunch of these lying around or if it's the same one that keeps being reused or what. Yeah. I do believe that they um, they redesign them for each film um, in subtle ways. And there's some great, if you're interested in more, and especially how movie costumes work, there's a great blog out there called Tyranny of Style. Hmm. Um, that is run by one of the lead costume designers for Walt Disney World. And he has incredible access to some of the best designers out there in film and Broadway, just some really high-profile people who open up uh, their process uh, in a way that you just don't see anywhere else. So really, really great blog to check out. Absolutely. Well, we'll post a link to that uh, in the episode notes. So. Um Again, this, this whole world is so, is so fascinating. So, um, so you ended up, you know, you've, you've worked all over the country. You've worked in New York, all different theaters. Um, and, um, so has, has the bulk of your career been in theater as opposed to film or? Yes, I've done um, almost no film and t television work. I am trying to break into that a little bit. Uh, but again, it's because the 
the process is different. The skill set is, is very much the same, but the process and the schedules um, are very, very different. So it's, it's a little bit difficult for a theatrical schedule to line up with the needs of a television or a movie schedule and vice versa. But I'll get there. I have no doubt of that. <laughs> so let's talk about the theatrical costume design process because, okay. you know, as I mentioned to you off the air, as a former theater actor myself, growing up doing um, well-produced theater at the school and, and camp and college level where they had budgets and resources and real production teams, I was so... The whole thing was so exciting and how all the designers were involved and the costume part. So, you know, assuming things are at a certain level of professionalism and you have, you know, the level of resources you need, you know, within reason. Um, let's talk about the process because my, you know, my impression was always the, the design team has these production meetings and they all sit together, the director, the lighting designer, the set designer the costume designer, the sound designer, and they all work together to make this unified vision happen. Mm -hmm. um, so let's take it from your perspective as the costume designer. Okay. So you get hired on a show and you, you, you agree to do it. What's the first step for you? Well, just to um, just to simplify it even further, let's say regional, and I'll tell you, uh, I can go into a little detail later about how New York specifically is different. But so let's say I've been hired on a regional show. Right. Um, first thing I'm going to do before I even say yes is I'm going to read the script. Yep. And then I'm going to read my contract. Yep. Um, and sort of see if the timeline that we're looking at um, as well as the budget and the resources are are adequate, um, and there may be some negotiating back and forth. But let's assume that all goes swimmingly. <laughs> yeah. So then what I'm going to do is I'm going to do two things. Um, I'm going to make a very, very specific grid of who is in what scene and how many costumes we're looking at and what I need to be researching for each of these scenes. And, oh, this one needs to be a quick change. And, oh, that's a tap number, so we're definitely going to need these kinds of shoes. So I make a, a very detailed sort of nuts and bolts grid, but it's also still very much broad strokes of, all right, well, she's at the prom, so she's wearing a prom dress don't need to get into color or anything like that. We just know they're at the proms. And then in the next scene, there's a nightgown, that sort of level of, of detail. Um, and then I'm going to start collecting research. Um, and depending on the director, we may touch base at this point, or there are other directors that like me to noodle a bit first and come with a more, um, coherent idea to them before we talk. Whereas, um, other directors, they have a very, very strong point of view from the beginning, um, and they will send me research images or poems and words and messages that we want to make sure that we get across. Um, yeah, so that's so. Let's talk about that a bit because that's what hmm. I was going to ask you. So, I mean, obviously, there's there's so many variables. So, firstly, 
is it a new play that's being produced for the first time, or is it a play that's been around? Now, right. obviously, just because a play's been around doesn't mean the costumes have to be the same as before or anything, but, <laughs> you know, these things can come into play. And then, you know, I guess some playwrights get fairly detailed with design elements in their scripts, and I'm guessing that designers hate that, but I don't know. But, um... And then, of course, the next level is, as you were just alluding, does the director really want to micromanage everything, or does he let you have your creative freedom in your department? And obviously, it is the director's ultimate vision, but with you at the helm of the costume part of that vision. So, I guess, as you were just saying, it varies, but generally... You know, how much real creative freedom do you get versus just, like, the director telling you what they want? Well, I don't think micromanage is the, is the right term to use there. Um, I think it's more, uh, what I was alluding to is that some directors have a strong point of view about an aesthetic mm-hmm. that they want the whole show to aim for. Yeah. Others really want the actors to have more of a voice um, or others are more content to say, you know, I'm just, I'm concerned with the words. Sure. Like here, here are my words, help me with the visuals. Um, and some directors may not have the vocabulary or the education in design to communicate what they want effectively. And that's part of our job is to find, is to, listen to their style of communication and translate that into our art form. Um, I will say I won't work with a director who just wants me to paint by the numbers. I have no interest in that. Um, And luckily I've encountered very few who want me to do that. And how do you know from the beginning if that's the case? Like before you sign a contract, do you have meetings or conversations with them to kind of, determine that for yourself or um yes i mean it's a little bit like like you know it when you see it yeah it's it's usually pretty clear right down to the job description when that's what someone wants really interesting okay yeah that's 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 good and i guess it makes sense but i i'm i'm curious about that so can you give an example of what would be a clue or a red flag in a written job description that would give you pause to go, oh, this might be a little too, too paint by numbers for me. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a combination of, because when I look at the job description, I will also immediately go to that theater's website because their production photos are going to give me a very, very good idea of what level of quality they expect from their costumes and also uh, how far they stray from the traditional design. Okay. So photos can be very helpful in looking at that. Um, Also, you tend to, um, there'll be words like, oh, mostly rental, looking for someone to design and build. Um, Pay based on experience tells me that they're looking for someone. young and cheap and what so again i you know again I, this is very interesting and i'm and i'm i'm not clear necessarily myself so so i get the uh pay based on experience why that would be a sign of that i understand that 
what's the what's the red flag of the design and build part? The design and build, the red flag there is that, I mean, especially for a large musical, if they're looking for one person to come up with the looks and execute them. Oh, okay. Um, it either tells me that they want a very traditional rental package, so they're not really looking for design, they're looking right. for something called a coordinator. Right. Or it tells me that they have very that they don't understand that design comes with its own set of um, expertise, knowledge, and labor, and that building it is a separate process. Can the same person do it? Yes. Um, are you going to get a slightly lesser product? Often. No, that of course that man. This goes back to what you told me off the air and what you wrote to me that. Right, right. If they don't realize that they're separate skills and you need, you know, quality people and men of both. And of course that makes it. It's kind of like saying, you know, a composer can also play every instrument. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. And there are costumers out there making miracles happen all by themselves, sure. alone in a basement every day. Uh, and they should probably be paid a lot more, and you should give them some help and a window. Well, so that's a good segue. So we should have actually covered this as, like, the pre-first step, so to speak. <laughs> you know, negotiating money, I'm sure that's a big part of it for you. And I don't know the answer to this. Is there a union for costume designers? There is. Great. And what is it called? Um, it's called the United United Cedic Artist, or USA, um, and that encompasses all areas of design. So costume, uh, scenic design, lighting, and sound. So I assume anybody working on Broadway is in that unit. Uh, mandatorily, yes. The Broadway League uh, is required, uh, all of their designers, to be USA. And uh, I... If they have a designer that is um, coming up from the regional theaters or from another country, they will be grandfathered in, um, and they will be sponsored by the Broadway League. Um, they will pay their initial dues um, and get their stamp that way. And with regional theater, you know, is it is it comparable? Like if it's an equity house, the designers are probably union as well, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Um, what you want to look for in regional houses is uh, whether it's a Lort Theater, L-O-R-T. Yep. Um, and those go from A to D. Yes. Um, if you're at a Lort, I would say probably C and above, you're most likely dealing with union designers. Although in the Midwest and you know outside of the coastal areas, uh, because USA covers both film and theater, it's a lot more advantageous for coastal designers, whether it be East or West, to be members of that union. Many regional designers uh, have enough of a network through the Lord Theaters that, or they have a great agent that they don't necessarily feel the need to go that route. Yeah. So, so it's, it's case by case. Sure. So, oh, and, and you guys have agents as well. Wow. So, um, so, uh, and I assume therefore as well that similar to equity or comparable to equity, 
that guarantees you guys a certain level of pay and certain working conditions and so forth? Um, so forth. Equity is a, is a very, very strong union and I respect them a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, uh, USA, we are working on, on getting that level of influence again. Yeah. Although, yes, they've been really advantageous in a lot of the Broadway deals. Um, and especially off Broadway now, we've, we've made some really, really great strides. Um, and they're very, very strong in, um, the film unions. But yes, yeah, so it does, there, it does guarantee certain minimums. Yeah. Um, and it does suggest certain working conditions, but unfortunately, often, the reality is through no forethought or malice. I mean, cause I have a provision in all of my USA contracts that I shall, that I shall not be required to do the work of the production staff, but you know, needs must. And I often will have to jump in and do a last minute hem or do my own, uh, hand painting on a costume just so because by, by production yeah. staff, you mean the, the building part. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I can't be required to do that as part of a union contract, but I have yet to meet a costume designer who is not willing to jump into the trenches when needs must. Of course. Okay. So anyway, so obviously you learn over the years about, you know, negotiating proper pay and, and, and then that's something that, you know, you know, you can't really explain clearly. It's just you learn what's appropriate and, and what to demand for yourself, I'm assuming. Um, yeah. And, okay, so let's get back to the steps in the process. So you make, okay. you make your grid, you start with your general plans of what you're going to need. Um, and at that point, you don't know the actors yet, though, right? I mean, you have, you know, the general type of each part. Well, you don't actually know the actor's look or their dimensions or anything, right? Correct. Although occasionally, um, and especially in academic theater, I will get that information ahead of time, and it's awesome. Nice. Um, because there's nothing that sells your sketch quite as much as putting the actual actor's face on it. Sure. <laughs> uh, the actors love it. The directors love it. Um, but And on some... Larger projects, too, if you've got a name, you'll know that, that they're behind it. But, yeah, so you'll come and you'll have your, your preliminary designs, much like a scenic designer or lighting designer has their prelim package. We have our preliminary package as well. And what that looks like is very, very specific research for each character, along with a list of um, what we're proposing to build versus rent versus buy or pull for each character, what we think the, the labor needs are. Um, and I'll get help in breaking that down from a shop manager. Um, and in, 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 cause we're using regional theater as the example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if this is a, a uniform answer. I'm guessing it's probably not because you mentioned that you want to check the contract for all these kind of details, but what kind of time are we talking about? You know, how long before opening night are, are you starting all this work? You know, what, what, how, what kind of time are you given? The goal is to, because typically uh, you're looking at between a four and six week rehearsal period. Okay. 
And you really want to be going into first fittings on the first day of rehearsal, if at all possible. Okay. Which means I assume that if it's a six week or it's a four week rehearsal period, whatever it is. So you, so you want to be in first fittings by the first day of rehearsal. So does that mean that you're starting your pre-work and your research, what, like a month before that or? Um, so using Susical as an example, mm -hmm. I had, we had, my final designs were due four weeks before first rehearsal. There you go. See, that's what I said. A month. Yeah. See, I got this. No, no. Yeah. On. <laughs> we unfortunately, we had a little bit of a setback, um, with um, some budgetary concerns. So the entire team, we actually redesigned everything. We lost a week to that. So then I had to redesign based on one last week of build time. Oh, wow. Um, but we're making it work. Um, but it's, and that's where a really good shop manager can save your bacon. So again, using this production as an example, um, yeah, we had a, a, our budget wasn't, quite where we wanted it to be based on the size of the cast and like what we were trying to achieve with the show. So the shop manager and I said, well, okay, if we pull these looks for the who's uh, and make like, how can we make them look coherent? So I had her go up into stock and I said, what color do you see the most of, you know, I gave her a list of colors and I was like, if you see a lot of this color, I want it to be this color. And, you know, I think I gave her like, purple, yellow, and green, and she came up and said, there's a lot of purple up there. I said, great. The Who's are all purple. <laughs> uh, we're going to use yellow as an accent, so I went online and I found all sorts of cheap pom-poms and yarn and trim, and, you know, we were able to pull together a cohesive and fun sort of uh, design for the Who's while still being able to spend the majority of our budget on the more fantastical creatures. Um, so, so having a good shop manager that, that can help you out like that is awesome. Shout out to you, Alex. I know you're going to listen to this because you're a podcast freak. Oh, yeah? Nice. Good job. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, that makes sense. So, so again, just to be clear on the, on the timeline. So you, let's just say you get your four weeks before rehearsal start. So when rehearsals start, and therefore you're doing first fittings, mm -hmm. that means that the director has by then agreed with or signed off on your design. Yes. Okay. So that means that that's locked in, at least more or less, and um, then you do the fitting. So while the actors are rehearsing, you guys are making the costumes. Yes, and we're discovering things in the fitting, and the director is discovering things in the rehearsal process. So it's not, no, you can only have this shape thing, um, especially with modern dress, which I refer to as improv tragedy, because that'll, we'll change that up until the last possible second. Oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah, so we're still, it's still very much, I don't want to say in flux. But I especially treat the sketches as a working drawing and also as a conceptual model uh, because the design is not complete until you have the actor in the room, on the set, in the lights, doing the thing. It's, it's not the design until it's able to do all of those things at once. 
No, of course, that makes sense. And so my memory of, of this kind of stuff, at least from school-level theater that I did, um, was that, you know, once you get to tech week, as they call it, um, and the lighting and sound and all the other elements come together, and of course, in the sense of costumes, you guys have to then work out, or the stage manager and the director have to work out, you know, the actual logistics of the costume changes and mm-hmm. you know, the crew that's working with, that's helping the actors with the costumes and all that stuff. So, again, using the regional theater example, how soon before opening do you actually start dress rehearsals where the actors are rehearsing in the costumes? Um, well, and that depends on how much of a preview process ah, you have right. as well. Right. I will put, I um, especially like to put in shoes and rehearsal items mm-hmm. as early as possible mm-hmm. uh, because there's nothing like breaking in a shoe. Yeah. Uh, and if I've got so like right now, you know, the amazing Maisie has this long, amazing tail. And, you know, I guarantee you that actress is not used to having a train <laughs> on her backside no, I wouldn't think so, no. every day of her life while walking in platform sneakers. That's right. just not her everyday life. Right. So we're going to do whatever we can for those, you know, sort of very special things to make sure they have what they need in rehearsal so that it's not a surprise. I mean, I have had requests come in for rehearsal jeans and then I just laugh and laugh and laugh but (laughs) rehearsal shoes rehearsal tails you know something that they're going to have to take on and put off on stage I will either want to if I'm able to put the real thing as soon as possible in I will otherwise it'll be a rehearsal item and then uh, as far as dress rehearsals there's a big debate going on right now um, over whether it is better to have costumes in cutie queue mm-hmm. or to only have them in dress. Okay. And what what are the what are the arguments for and against this? <laughs> well, the arguments against having um, costumes in cutie queue are that problems arise when you wear something for twelve hours that do not arise when you wear something for two hours. That makes sense, yeah. Um, it takes the costumes out of the hands of the people that need to work on them. So it does reduce, um, adjustment time. To be honest, this, I'm, I forgot this or didn't know it, that I didn't realize Q to Q took that long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You'll have like, uh, that's, that's, that's three, 10 out of 12. Right. So that to, to remind myself and to those listening who may not know. Q to Q refers to the rehearsal where the designers are starting to work in all their exact elements and cues, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. smart, really, really smart theaters, they'll do a dry tech ahead of time so that the lighting designer and the, and the, the deck crew have worked out how to do all the scenic changes right. and where the light changes are happening. But Q to Q is when you have the actors on stage walking through the show and they'll give the cue line right walk to their spot and then we'll run through the queue and make adjustments with a live actor in the space right right yep 
Now, how helpful is it to your lighting designer if that actor is in their street clothes? Not, Not particularly helpful, I wouldn't think, no. It's also, you know, bad or good lighting can make or break your costume. Of course. Yeah, I had a a gorgeous sort of saffron colored burnout velvet robe on a young lady in um, the the lady from the sea, and she's sitting on this rock all by herself. And the design, the lighting designer, had just flooded the stage in these beautiful lavenders and violets, um, which, if you know color theory. Yellow and purple are on opposite sides of the color wheel, and when you mix them together, you get mud. <laughs> so, you know, I tap the lighting designer on the shoulder, and I say, hey, um, <laughs> that's yellow. And he looked at me and went, oh, tapped a couple of buttons. She was yellow. The rest of the stage was beautiful violet. So, and that was in Q to Q. Yeah. That we were able to solve that, which when you're in dress rehearsal and things are moving so fast, the lighting designer isn't necessarily looking at that garment in that moment and knows what to change when and where. All we know is that the director, after a long day of dress rehearsal, says, you know, that robe wasn't as exciting as I thought it would be. We should change it. Right. Right. So that's your argument for having costumes in QDQ. Sense to me. Yeah, but it, uh, there is a case for having costumes in Q2Q does change your labor expectations. You need to have a wardrobe crew there to take care of the garments. You need to make sure that you have laundry support, that you have doubles if there, because there's really not time to change out, to wash skins in between shows without paying overtime to your laundry department. So you might as well have two t-shirts and right. two pairs of socks. Right. Um, but it can also be a really great opportunity. Um, a fantastic wardrobe supervisor I recently worked with, she used Q2Q to rehearse quick changes with the actors who weren't on stage. So that by the time we got to the quick change, um, we got them the first go. The director didn't even know it was a quick change, and uh-huh. everyone was able to move forward smoothly. So it can be an opportunity if you have the support for it. Gotcha. Okay, so you have the Q to Q, and and it sounds like I would agree with you that costumes should be there. Um, and then the rest of after that is is uh, dress rehearsals, right? Mm-hmm. Slash tech. So obviously the actors are wearing their costumes at that point. Mm-hmm. So is that generally about a week before the show opens, or is it longer than that? Um, it's about a week, I'd say. Because Q to Q is included as part of that tech week process. Right. So, and depending on how many, it's between three and four days and how many dress rehearsals you're able to get into that. Sure. It depends on how Q to Q went. Gotcha. Well, no, it all makes sense. So, so again, overall, you now know how much time you're going to need and so forth and what resources you're going to need. So you, you know, you check for that in your contracts and everything. Um, but I think you alluded to this a couple of times that either theaters that, that don't know better or designers that don't know better or just budget and time limitations or whatever, that in some cases, um, 
you're just you guys are just not given proper time. Mm. And I guess you just have to kind of handle that if you're in it. I don't know. I guess if you, if you if 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 you know if 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 a less experienced designer gets themselves into that kind of situation, what do they do? <laughs> uh well, that's when you have to just look at the resources that you have and figure out what you can do with them. Right. Um, and it's not always that you weren't given enough. Uh, you know, sometimes it's that something happens. Sorry. Someone gets injured. The costume that looked great in the fitting just suddenly dies on stage through no fault of anybody's. Sure. Um, a moment gets cut. A moment gets added. Yeah. Uh, so... That, I mean, and that's the exciting and the scary thing about theater is that it is live um, and it is this constantly evolving process and you do have to be open to it. Um, but you sort of build, you build emergencies into your prep time. Yeah. Um, you, you always want to go into tech with a contingency uh, of both time, labor, and money if you're able to. Um, any, any time I have a budget, I, you know, the shop manager and I work out ahead of time. All right. Well, this we're setting aside for emergencies. Yeah. Um, this is, we want to, we want to go into tech with this much money. Sure. Um, and if we don't need it, we know exactly how we're going to spend it. And if we do, well, isn't it great that we had that and that we can just, that you can run out and, and buy the thing. Um, you know, and sometimes it's that you got to stay late at the theater and add eyelet lace to petticoats because you changed the, because the show took a completely different direction. And that's what takes the show uh, to Broadway and around the world. Yeah. Fiasco into the woods. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, so... You want to make sure that your people are treated fairly. You want to try and plan for those eventualities. I mean, you should know approximately what your show is going to need. And you have to be able to say, okay, um, yes, and, or yes, but. Uh, so if a director adds a musical number, you need to be, you need to have your, uh, your paperwork and your shop budget in order to be able to look at that and say, yeah, we can do that or we can do that, but we're going to have to lose this thing. Right. You know, yeah, I've, of course. yeah, I had a very similar situation where, uh, they're like, all right, well, we really need them to, to tear away these costumes. And then they're wearing jazzercise clothes underneath. And, you know, so I, I said, well, okay, yeah, I could do that, but then they can't change clothes for, uh, for the curtain call. Right. Okay. So it's, it's a constant negotiation and a back and forth and a, well, these shoes didn't cost $80. They cost 20 like we thought they did. So, you know, yeah, we can get a different fabric for the base because the one that you ordered uh, is a little bit too flimsy. I was in a play my senior year of high school where I was only in a couple of scenes near the beginning of the play, and I was not in it at all the rest. And my character 
spent time in in water, and they actually were able to build a little pool or tub of water, which I sat in on stage. So I was truly drenched in my costume. Uh, and I remember a discussion about, so when I'm backstage for the next two hours before bows, do I keep this wet thing on? Do I keep it to something else? <laughs> I don't remember what we even decided, but yeah. I've had that very same discussion along with Dix. It's March. Uh, do we rent heaters? Right. Uh, do we want them? Do you want them to look wet all the time, or should we make it out of polyester? Or do we exactly? And then the water was cut. <laughs> exactly. But I was ready. Absolutely. That's that's what you do. So, all right, so let's talk now about kind of your life overall in the sense of, like any theatrical artist, you know, you're still ultimately a freelancer going from job to job and sometimes multiple jobs at once, but, you know, you don't have a, you know, it's, it's still a, a, non, you know, a non-traditional a, a career and job path, so... I'm assuming, uh, and I hope I'm right about this, that you're at a point now where you don't have to have any day jobs unrelated to to your industry. Would that be accurate or no? That is accurate. Good, good. And when you were first starting out, did you have to have unrelated day jobs or no? Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, briefly, my day job was acting uh, at Universal Studios, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, the, I worked at the Jaws ride, and that got me health insurance while I waited for that design career to take off. There you go. Um, but, yeah, there was a time in Kansas City when I had just gotten out of grad school that I was designing, I was producing, I was running my own little theater company, and then I was working at Target to pay the bills. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you do what you have to, and then I was very, very fortunate when I moved to New York. There's so much theater and so much entertainment here that someone with, you know, the right skill levels, you know, I can pick up, like, a little day gig pretty much anywhere. Um and it's great. I, I uh, have been working four years now as an overhire stitcher at the Juilliard School in their costume shop, and I call it my working vacation. So that's actually what I was going to say. I'm looking at your notes here, and it says day job freelance stitching. And so I guess my question is, obviously that is still in your industry, which is great, but, you know, at that point, for those particular hours of your day, you're not a designer, you're a builder or a stitcher or whatever. Um, so you're you're doing that side of things. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like you don't mind that because you still enjoy that. You just don't want to do it at, at, on the same project you're also designing. Yeah, it's and it's a it's a different type of labor. Right. Uh, when I'm designing, it's a lot of intellectual labor. It's a lot of management. Um, you know, it's, it just uses a different part of my brain. Of course. And like I said, I call Juilliard my working vacation because I don't need to worry about whether or not this button will get sewed on on time because it will get sewn on on time. Cause I am here from nine to five. Yep. 
and I will be paid this amount of money, and I will sell this on beautifully. Yeah. And I will just do what this designer wants done, no matter how silly I think it is or whether or not I think it's going to work. And then when it doesn't work, I will sew it a different way tomorrow, and everything is fine. And they bring in snacks. Yeah. No, but it's good that you can change your headspace that way and just go, in this in this instance, I am not a designer. It's not my place to give my opinion. I'm just doing what I'm told because that's what I'm getting paid for. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's it's difficult to sustain sure. uh, the level of brain power that you need. Is it not that technicians don't use a great deal of brain power? It's just a different kind of labor. I worked as a draper for a while at Montclair State University, and that's very much sort of, it's figure, you have the design, but you're still figuring out the puzzle of, okay, well, this is how they made it in the Elizabethan era, but I need it to function this way on this actress with these materials, so I'm going to put the puzzle together this way. Yeah. And it's very stimulating um, and it and very, very rewarding. It's just a different kind of thing. And I don't have to worry about, you know, do I have the right wardrobe person paired up with the right actor? Is the director getting the level of attention that he or she needs? Um, you know, did I do the budget paperwork correctly? Uh, am I, is that thing going to arrive in time? It's just a different level of organization um, and just a different part of your brain. Of course. So, by the way, on another note, or a related note, so you're based in New York, right? Mm -hmm. And you do a lot of work in New York, but you also do a lot of regional work. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning that you are able to do things remotely and so forth. So, generally speaking, how much of your year are you physically out of town? Mm. Well, whether by choice or profession... It's about four to six months of the year, actually. Okay. And do you like that as part of your lifestyle, or do you wish you weren't out of town so much? I like traveling. Um, I like going different places and meeting different people. I had the opportunity recently to go work in Scotland for Gregory Gale as part of the Edinburgh Fringe. That was magical. Um, I also really like hanging out with my husband. <laughs> So, so yes, <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a balance, uh, and I'm very lucky to have married an introvert who likes to hang out by himself occasionally, mm -hmm. and I also am the type that likes to go on solo adventures, so it does work out. But we've got about takes us about two weeks before it starts to to grate. Oh, sure. And um, is he in the arts as well, or no? He is a graphic designer, which is why my website looks amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. um, nice. So, um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've heard, you know, there, there are actors where this comes up and whatever, but let me, let me put it this way. I, I assume there are costume designers in New York who, for whatever reason, don't wish to ever leave New York. They don't. And who don't. They don't want to travel. They don't want to go out of town. So 
is it possible to make a decent full-time career as a costume designer if you only want to stay in New York? Absolutely. Oh, cool. And I mean, it's possible to make a decent career as a costume designer or a technician in other places as well. Um, one of my favorite costume crafts people on the planet lives is based out of New Orleans, and he does crafts and like character feature stuff for, for Marvel. He's worked on the Transformers movie. He just worked on on the Fosse movie, and then I get to hire him to come to North Dakota and make weird stuff for Beauty and the Beast for me. So. There are all sorts of things that you can do, whether it's working in a university, working at a regional shop, sure. starting your own business on Etsy, making waterproof microphone packs. You know, there's all sorts of things that you can do. Um, and New York doesn't have to be it. No, of course. And um, by the way, you just alluded to something that I actually meant to ask you earlier, so I'm glad you reminded me, which is... I assume that another element of your contracts can be uh, whether you get to bring in your own people to help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you, you're able to do that sometimes? Yeah, well, and in New York especially, you have to bring in your own people uh, because the theaters here, so regionally, there is a theater, a physical theater, and they have a costume shop. Right. In New York, there is a physical theater that a production will rent out for the run of a show. And then you have a designer who is expected to accept bids to have the costumes built in various shops. Oh, I see. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and the wardrobe crew is not brought on until the tech process. And they're only there to do... Um, maintenance and small repairs their job is not to build the costumes um so you'll ex so you will I, I there's a great article by greg barnes on um tyranny of style well it's an interview of greg barnes on tyranny of style where it talks about aladdin on broadway was built in 27 different shops wow yeah um, and you know, I remember again for fiascos into the woods, I had, we had to interview several different shops and then we had dye work that needed doing. So we sourced that out to several different dyers or, you know, there's the shoe guy who custom makes shoes or you'll send something out to the pleader or, um, Oh, I wish I remembered his name. There's a wonderful fabric painter um, here in New York, Jeff Fender. Everybody sends out their stuff to get gorgeously painted to Jeff Fender Studios. So, you know, each of the shops have their things that they're really good at. They each have their own price point. And then there's, you know, this slew of individuals that may work for themselves or they may work for another shop that has – they've – built a reputation for being really, really good at this thing. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, by the way, one other technical question I just that just occurred to me. Uh, on a Broadway show, I know there's all these rules about how the union stagehands have to do everything with the set and so forth. How does it work with who are the members of the crew that actually deal with costume changes and helping actors with costumes and are, are they restricted at all by stagehand union issues or no 
Wardrobe has their own union, which is 764. Oh, okay, great. Um, many uh, costumers are members of both unions, both 829. U- USA 829 is the New York-specific USA branch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 764 is the wardrobe union. Gotcha. Um, and that's both film and TV and for uh, Broadway. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to, I can be a tailor or a stitcher on a non-union film or TV show, but I would have to be 764 to work on a union show. Right. Uh, but, yeah, so if you want to be a union wardrobe person, you will basically you'll attend a meeting and put in an application, and they will give you a list of all of the union shops that are hiring in the city, and then you put in your 30 days. So you have to successfully work for 30 days in a union shop, at which point you will be considered qualified for all union work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can start taking those jobs. Now, on a Broadway show, you'll have the day players, you know, who are the people that come in during the day and they do small repairs and laundry. Right. And then you'll have a separate crew in the evenings who will be doing the actual changes or helping the actors get ready um, and, you know, the emergency repairs and that sort of thing, all headed up by a wardrobe supervisor. Beautiful. And by the way, the costumes have to be, like, washed and cleaned every night, right? Um, yes and no. The way that um, laundry schedules work on Broadway, because a lot of these theaters are quite old. Yeah. And may or may not have laundry facilities on site. Uh-huh. Uh, and there are costumes that can only be dry cleaned. Now, the equity rules are that skins layers have to be washed every night. Um, so you'll have triples or even quadruplets. I see, right. Quadruples yeah. of, uh, of certain costume items. Yeah. So that there is a fresh item for every single performance. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Okay, but yeah, but the point is, at some point, these things are constantly, continuously being washed and cleaned. (laughs) Yes, and they have to be done so professionally, um, you know, because it may have been dyed, it may have antique buttons, it Mm -hmm. may need to be steamed in a certain way so as to maintain its shape, so it's so making sure that you have the right people that are doing the maintenance and care of those costumes is just as important as making sure that you have the right people build them in the first place. Yeah, and by the way, again, on that note, I just I love all this nuts and bolts stuff. If if a Broadway show ends at eleven PM, are wardrobe people staying at the theater till like one AM washing clothes or they do it like the next morning? Um it depends on several different factors. Mm-hmm. So again, you have you've got your day shift and your and your evening crew. Yeah. Um, and often your evening crew will start the laundry mm-hmm. if the facilities are there. Now, if they're having to send something out, right, right, that's a case of um, the next. They'll make sure that the dirties are not in the ditties. The ditty bag is the sort of hanging bag where uh, all of the actors sort of hand items, so like their underwear, their socks, their undershirts, that kind of thing will be in there. And so you don't want 
some poor unsuspecting day player to reach into the ditty and pull out a soaking wet jock strap. That's not nice. No, of course. Uh, so they'll make sure at the end of the night that the actors have put their, uh, their used clothing in the proper, correct place so that it can be handled accordingly. So wait a minute. Am I understanding you that everything an actor wears on stage, even down to their underwear, is, is provided as part of the costume? Sometimes. Wow. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, um, if I've got an actress in skin tight jeans, I'm going to want to make sure that she doesn't wear her lacy granny panties one day. You know, I'm always going to, I'm never going to want to see that panty line. Or if it's a certain kind of show, maybe I do want to see that panty line. So I've picked out a specific pair of underwear that gives me maximum silhouette. <laughs> And that actually might lead to something I was going to follow up with you on from way earlier in the conversation, which is you said that actors' personal issues can come out in costume fittings. What exactly did you mean by that? Did you mean, like, insecurities about how they look in the costumes? It can be that. Um, it can also be, I mean, not everybody adjusts their... Uh, their bedroom lighting to make their their cheekbones look great every day. You know, not everyone has a working knowledge of lights or sets or even, you know, publicity. Uh, but everyone puts on clothes every day. Right. And therefore, everyone, even if they don't necessarily care about fashion, they have opinions about how something feels. Oh, I see what you're saying. And how something looks. Gotcha. Yeah. And even further than that, sometimes there are things that are going on in the rehearsal room that we have no part of. And it can happen that an actor feels like that they don't necessarily have a voice in the room. Mm -hmm. And often when that is going on, the place where they feel like they can have a voice is in the fitting room. I see. Gotcha. And as you alluded to earlier as well, depending on the director and the tone of the production or whatever, sometimes they do want actors to give input on their costumes, right? Yeah, and I always want an actor to give input on their costume because, you know, they're not walking coat hangers, and if I didn't want to work with people, right. you know, I'd be making doll clothes for a living. So. Well said, well said, exactly. Um, and there's so much, you know, they're building and crafting the character just as much as I am, Um, you know, and in some ways, well, many ways, even more so, and they have a more intimate knowledge of what they need to do and how the character needs to feel than I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a great joy when an actor comes in and also trusts me to help them uh, give that message. You know, if I have an actor that says, comes in and says, well, in this scene, she's feeling, she's feeling trapped. Um, you know, in this scene, she's feeling open, you know, and we can play with like unbuttoning a collar Yeah. or, you know, in this one, we really want to line the bodice and give that, that secure feeling. Let's, let's wrap her up. Let's support her. Or, um, you know, I, 
I recently spoke with an actor of it. It's like, you know, I really, I'm giving you these shoes because I'm trying to bring you forward onto the balls of your feet as if you're going to leap into the audience. Mm -hmm. And you can see that you can't see me. And now I'm like jumping around making all sorts of hand motions. And I do that in the fitting as well in the, you know, and I can translate an actor's gesture into something that is happening with the costume. Very cool. And now and, yeah. Yeah, and I can make a gesture with their costume that instantly you can see them internalize and make a part of their character and bring to their performance. And that's what true collaboration is. Um, and to say, no, we're going to stick to the sketch is, like, quite frankly, it's just limiting yourself. Absolutely. And I was going to say, exactly, collaboration, and it really all does come together and work together. It's amazing. So, um, uh, I want to get to some things that uh, you mentioned to me off the air that you wanted to, to get into, and we've gotten into some aspects of these, but specifically, um, and again, we definitely covered this a, uh, a few times, but let's, let's get into it uh, precisely and, and more elaborately. Uh, the costume department is not a one-woman show. It's not. It's not some poor old lady in the basement. Right. right. Um, yeah, and I think we've covered that, you know, quite a bit of just yeah, have. having people realize, you know, just really, really thinking about how much effort and and labor, both intellectual and physical, goes into creating that costume. Um, and that, no, you can't just change the color on a whim. And yes, of course we can change things, but, you know communicating with us in a timely fashion helps us to give you what you need in the way that you need it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, and again, you had some other things you mentioned about that. It takes a diverse village to make a costume and that design is not the only career path in the world of costume. So again, as you said, there's those separate skill sets of design versus build versus sketch, as we talked about earlier too. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are people out there that all they do is make iridescent fairy wings <laughs> or tails for mermaids. Yeah. And God bless them because there's a need for it. Yeah. <laughs> I need some, I don't want to sit around making fairy wings for hours. I will gladly pay you whatever you want to do that thing that gives you joy and it looks beautiful and I don't have to do it. Yeah. And again, you mentioned pay. And that's another, you know, point you made, and it's very important because, you know, especially in smaller theaters with smaller budgets and whatever, but, you know, these design and construction elements are serious skill sets that have time, knowledge, and resources and deserve to be paid for what they do. Absolutely. And I think it's very easy to say, oh, well, my grandma can sew, but how many people have I had come into the shop and say, well, I can't even sew on a button? So. You know, to give, to give an example, when I was in high school, I worked in an alteration shop, and people who couldn't come in and sew on a button, they paid us 25 cents a button. Wow. Uh, and that was five minutes of my time, probably less now. So if you work that into hourly, I don't know, it came out to something like $60 an hour. I'm not going to do the math right now. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not suggesting that we should be paid $60 an hour, although there are some specialized skills that absolutely do demand that pay. Um, but yeah, just remember that 
this is, you are asking for someone's time. Absolutely. Time and, and, and their expertise to make a product that's going to be important for your, for what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so this next one, uh, comes to advice for people who would like to get into this career or expand their career in this field, uh, which I was going to ask you anyway. So, you know, clearly this seems like something where so much of it is networking and, and making connections and so forth. I, I can't imagine, you know, that, that it, that, that it's not a lot of that. Um, and you, you, you said to me, networking is equally as important as education. And mm-hmm. you said something very interesting. You said, use your education to network and your network to educate. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a story that illustrates yes. that perfectly. Great. This is how I got my first Broadway assistant job. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned that when I was at the University of Florida, one of the grad students frequently took me on his summer jobs, uh, Darren Poupal. Yep. So during one of those summer jobs, uh, we rented a, a, a costume package from a designer at another upstate New York theater. Mm-hmm. Recently, uh, actually not recently, Gosh, is it two years ago now? Anyway, so I was looking for some work. I reached out to a friend of mine, and she said, oh, you should look at this article that or this ad that was posted online. They're looking for stitchers for a tour. So I looked, and I saw that the costume coordinator was Jim Halliday. I said, I know that name. How do I know that name? I went through my records. Jim Halliday was the guy that I had rented that costume package from 10 years prior and oh, wow. he had laughed as I attempted to shove every single one of those costumes into my tiny little hatchback. <laughs> so I called Jim Halliday and, you know, expressed my interest in the job. And I brought up the fact that I had rented from him previously. And I also brought up that I was currently working as a designer. He knew I was um, applying for a stitcher's position, but I also, in the course of the conversation, was like, hey, and if you're looking for, like, an assistant or a shopper, this is within my skill set. So I get the job on the tour. This is the Sound of Music tour as a stitcher. Day one, he comes in and says, I need someone that can shop. We're going to have to rebuild an entire track. He looked at me and said, Genevieve, you've done shopping, shopping, haven't you? Yes, I have. So I ended up as a shopper rather than a stitcher on that production, mm-hmm. which is how I got to meet Jane Greenwood and go into her home and deliver swatches and costumes for her. Wow. As soon as that show opened, I sent Jane a lovely thank you note saying, you know, I enjoyed working on your costumes. I enjoyed working with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Call me if you need anything. Two months later, I get a call, and that was how I became the assistant on The Parisian Woman, my first Broadway show. Phenomenal. And that's all networking through 10 years. This is just 10 years of networking, of talking to people, of, you know, the yes and. Yeah. And also it seems to me, you know, like anything, even if your goal is to be a designer and you're trained as a designer and you're good at it, you may have to start by paying your dues on, on, you know, other types of labor and move up, right? Yeah. Pay your dues and raise your hand. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I love that story. That's great. And yeah, again, especially in something like this, any kind of the arts like this, it's, you know, it's not like going online and filling out a job application. I mean, it can be, but for the most part, so much of it is just connections and experience and networking and, you know. Yeah. And never discount those people that you worked with way back when, because they've been moving forward with their career too. Absolutely. Keep in touch with them. You don't have to work with them every year, but you know, every once in a while, poke them and say, Hey, what have you been up to? I miss working with you. And you know, sometimes it won't happen, but other times it's, you know what? I know someone who's looking for something and they're going to like working like with you just as much as I did. Yeah. And on that note too, you know, it's one of these general things and everybody can say it in any field, any industry, any context, but it's worth saying and especially in something like theater and films where there can be egos and attitudes and stuff. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a diva. Be a nice human being. Right. And that, that, that takes you very far too, doesn't it? It does. But also, especially for women, don't let the need to be liked to get in the way of getting what you need. Oh, absolutely. That's true as well. Thank you. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, Cool. And then uh, another note you, you, you gave me, uh, and, you know, success is building the life you want to live. Absolutely, of course. And then under that, you put, there is so much more out there than Broadway. Yes. And, you know, I think I've touched on that several times in our yeah. conversation, um, that there is just this, there's this narrative out there that the only way to make it in theater is to be on Broadway. And there are people making wonderful theater out there. And some of them are doing it as their sole source of income. Others are doing it on the side. Some people drift away from it and come back to it. Um, but, you know, success is, like I said, yeah, it's building the life that you want to live. And those goals can change. When I was younger, I wanted to do nothing but travel all the time and meet all the people and go to all the places. And, you know, that's a little bit less important to me now. I like stay, you know, it's part of why I chose New York so that I could stay home a little bit more often because I used to travel nine months out of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just take the time to just occasionally look around you and see, are you getting what you need? out of your career and out of your life. And if you're not, it's within your power to change that. And you shouldn't let anybody else's idea of what success is stymie your happiness and your creativity. Absolutely. And in terms of being open to your own changing nature, I can tell you for myself, you know, I was an actor in school and in my 20s and I was so obsessed with it, and I thought, I need to be an actor. I want to be an actor. It's all I thought about. It's all I wanted to do. And then gradually things changed. I took some time off from it. And long story short, I found this whole other thing I love now with writing and interviewing and journalism and the podcast. And I am so disconnected from acting. I have no desire to do it. If you gave me a script, I would feel so awkward and disconnected from it. <laughs> so, no, I would. And, and, and I, I feel so much more comfortable in myself now 
but I don't have this need or even want to be an actor. So you just never know, like you said, how your own desires and, and nature are going to change, but pay attention to that. Yeah. And your art or your life can feed your art. Um, you know, I did the sure. same thing. Yeah. I, I was really burnt out after grad school. I sort of dropped out of the costume world for a little bit and started my own theater company as a producer. Phenomenal. And it was really hard and not very rewarding, but also extremely rewarding. And it opened me up to a completely different kind of creativity. And then when I did return to costume, I was a better manager and I was able to bring people together and talk to them Um and organize them in a way that I just would have had no clue how to do before. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, and of course, again, you know, people's skills can apply in any, in any job, in any facet of life. But, um, you know, uh, that's a beautiful note to go out on. Uh, this has been a fantastic and really enlightening conversation. I want to thank you so much for, again, for doing it. Um, uh, is there anything else you want to get into before we wrap up? Gosh, we covered so much. This has been a blast. Thank you. I'm so glad for me too. And again, we're going to put all these things in the episode notes, including that blog that you mentioned. What was the name of that blog again? Tyranny of Style. Yes. And then do you want to share, and again, we'll post this stuff uh, if you like. Do you want to share any of your own social media, your website or anything like that? Um, sure. You can find me online at gvbeller.com, uh, and my Instagram is suitcase full of glitter. Nice. And again, we'll post all this in the episode notes. And if anybody has any questions about the podcast or anything, you can reach me at craft business life podcast. That's all one word craft business life podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Genevieve, thank you again. This was incredibly fun. I'd love to have you back at some point to continue and have an update and whatever. But uh, for now, thank you. And uh, thanks, everybody. Until next time. Bye.